asked Bill a ways back, I said, we're coming in on the 4th of July weekend. We talk about the miracles of America. And the reason why I want to combine the two, and we saw this come together in the first service, is a lot of folks will go, I came to hear the gospel. Well, good. You're going to hear the gospel. But you're also going to hear some more things that pertain to the gospel. And, and there's a story. There's a reason why you have the ability to have this gospel in this nation. And you're going to learn about that. And this is going to encourage you as you step into this July 4th holiday that when you sing the national anthem and you shout the the land of the free and the home of the brave, what does freedom mean and why is it intrinsic in every human heart? What makes this nation significant and why is this celebration of July 4th one that should have great meaning in the church today? And and if that's a struggle for you, you're going to... If you, if you keep your, your eyes open and your ears open and you're willing to listen, you're going to see some things that will touch you deeply. And I can't think of anyone more gentle and, and just insightful than Bill Federer. I had the privilege to drive with him from San Diego to Thousand Oaks, and I did the same trip with him from here to Sacramento. And sitting with him, every time I get out of the car, first of all, I have stretch marks on my brain. But secondly, I, I have had the privilege to see what a tender and there's no guile in the man. I just, and, and the way he, God has given him this gift of, of being studious and, and citing all of his sources and meticulous and the number of books he's written, um, I, I'm, I'm touched every time. I'm a better minister every time I spend time with him. I love this man, and I love this man and this woman, and I wanted to share all good things with those who instruct me and those who give me this privilege, you. And so I brought him today. Uh, the first man who's going to speak is going to be Bill, and then we're going to have Walter come up. And the two of them you're going to see are seamless, seamless. And your lives are going to be challenged and touched, but you're also going to be inspired. Um, Bill's run for office three times. He almost beat the most heavily funded candidate in America, Dick Gephardt. That close. He's, he's, we have a lot in common. <laughs> Him more than me because he's experienced worse. But I've never heard him say a bad thing about anyone, ever. I was trying to do it this morning, and I still couldn't get him to say anything bad about anybody. I'm testing him. And he always, when you cut him, he bleeds Jesus. And I love this man. Would you welcome my dear friend, Bill Federer? Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Rob. And before I get started, I want to let you know how much I respect your pastor, Rob McCoy, and his beautiful wife, Michelle. And join with me in thanking the Lord for your pastors. And also, some of my heroes is um, David and Cindy Lane and their impact across the country, mobilizing pastors. Thank you, David and Cindy, for your great work for the Lord. Well, in the first service, I talked about the Revolutionary War, and I'm going to sort of pick up and talk about stories. Uh, And so let's jump into some. Uh, The King of England was a globalist. He was a one-world government guy. The sun never set on the British Empire. He controlled Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, India, a quarter of the world's population, right? Canada, Jamaica, Barbados, and America. And America's founders decided they did not like this globalist king telling us what to do, so they flipped it and made the people the king. So a republic is where the people are king ruling through representatives. And so when we pledge allegiance to the flag, we're basically pledging allegiance to us being in charge of ourselves. (laughs) So when somebody protests the flag, what they're saying is, I don't want to be the king anymore. 
It's like, okay, somebody else will decide what's going to happen in your life. And so the word citizen means co-king. So our founding fathers, for all their faults, they gave us a form of government where you get to decide where you're going to go to church, who you're going to marry, what clothes you're going to wear, what career you want to pursue, where you want to live. You get to be the king of your life, right? You and God. And then collectively, we're all king of America. Anyway, so America's founders break away, and we take the power of the king. We separate into three branches and so forth. Uh, John Jay was the first chief justice. He says, Americans are the first people whom heaven has favored with an opportunity of choosing the forms of government under which they should live. All other constitutions have derived their existence from violence or accidental circumstances. Your lives, your liberty, your property will be at the disposal only of your creator and yourselves. If I were to sum up the greatness of America, it is that line right there. Your lives, your liberty, your property are at the disposal of you and your creator. There's no government in between telling you where to live, who you got to marry, and who you can't marry, and so forth. And um, Reagan put it this way. In this country of ours took place the greatest revolution that has ever taken place in the world's history. Every other revolution simply exchanged one set of rulers for another. Here, for the first time in all the thousands of years of man's relation to man, the founding fathers established the idea that you and I had within ourselves the God-given right and ability to determine our own destiny. That's what is, makes America great. You have this opportunity. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, poet, says, America appears like a last effort of divine providence in behalf of the human race. So one of the things I did is I, I researched every civilization that's ever existed on planet Earth, all the way back to the beginning of the invention of writing, Sumerian cuneiform on clay tablets in the Mesopotamian Valley. And what do you see? kings. The most common form of government is a king. Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsar. As the centuries go on, the kingdoms get bigger because with military advancements, you can kill more people. Iron stronger than bronze and phalanx spears and scimitar swords. But it's that same fallen nature, a cane kill and able with a rock, only you're using another weapon. Until finally it gets to the place where you have the king of England. He's like a globalist. And so France helps America to gain our independence. King Louis XVI, you know what he got in return? nothing but debt. <laughs> you fight a war, you win, you don't get anything but debt, and then their crops fail for a couple of years. And the people say, oh, it's terrible. We have to do something. Let's chop off the king's head and the queen Marie Antoinette. Their situation didn't turn around. So then they decided to chop off all the heads of all the royalty. Their situation still didn't turn around. Then they chopped off the heads of all the rich people. They have money, we don't. They must be bad. It didn't turn around. Then they chopped off the heads of the businessmen and farmers. They got food and supplies, we don't. Still didn't turn around. Then they chopped off the heads of the hoarders, people that got extra food stored up, right? And, in the, and so it still did. Then they chopped off the heads of the clergy, the pastors that are speaking out against all the head chopping off stuff, right? <laughs> then they chop off the heads of the former revolutionaries, the ones that used to chop off heads but got tired of it. 40,000 people had their heads chopped off in Paris, France. And um, meanwhile, in America, Yale President Timothy Dwight writes about this. He says, about the year 1728, Voltaire, over in France, so celebrated for his wit and his hatred of Christianity, formed a systematical design to destroy Christianity and introduce in its stead a general diffusion of irreligion and atheism. So before our revolution, we had a great awakening revival with preachers. Before the French Revolution, they had this Voltaire guy. It's, Dwight continued, the principal parts of this system were the compilation of the encyclopedia in which with great art and insidiousness, the doctrines of Christian theology were rendered absurd and ridiculous. The being of God was ridicule, denied and ridiculed. Possession of property was pronounced robbery. 
Chastity and natural affection were declared to be nothing more than groundless prejudices. You know, feel like a girl today, boredom wars, you know. Um, adultery, assassination, poisoning, other infernal crimes of like nature were taught as lawful, provided the end was good, right? The end justifies the means. And so they decided they wanted to get the kids. Education of youth, books replete with infidelity, irreligion, immorality, and obscenity. That's why it's important to send your kids to Christian schools like we heard this morning. Um, to destroy us, therefore, our enemies must first destroy our Sabbath and seduce us from the house of God. So what happened in France? Uh, they chopped off all these heads, and then they decided to erase Christianity. They closed the churches, destroyed religious monuments. Robespierre, who was the head of their committee on public safety, he actually created terrorist attacks to force people to abandon their faith and, and embrace the secular government. Graves were desecrated, crosses forbidden, no public and private worship was allowed, right? We're sort of seeing some of this in China. Church education outlawed. Priests and ministers and those who harbored them were executed on sight. Sort of happened a few years later in Mexico. Well, then they send their army to the Vendée, an area of France where they killed 300,000 people. And um, so Robespierre puts a prostitute in Notre Dame Cathedral, covers her with a sheet and said, this is the goddess of reason, let's worship her. And then... They didn't want done in the year of the Lord, like our constitution. So they made 1792 the new year one. They didn't want a seven-day week with a Sabbath rest. So they came up with a decade week, a 10-day week. And each day was um, divisible by 10 hours, each hour by 100 minutes, each minute by 100 seconds. They said 10 was the number of man, 10 fingers and 10 toes. So they made every measurement in France divisible by 10. They called it the metric system. Maybe that's why I never really liked the metric system. <laughs> Anyway, so in the meantime, France breaks all their treaties with America, and they capture about 300 of our ships and stick our crews uh, in slavery. And so um, uh, we send over some ambassadors, and this guy Talleyrand, their foreign minister, said, if you give me millions of dollars, I'll stop it. And the cry goes across America, millions for defense, not one cent for tribute. And uh, anyway, so our president is John Adams, the second president. We all know George Washington's the first. Now it's John Adams. What does he do? He has a day of fasting and prayer. 1798, as the people of the United States are still held in jeopardy by insidious acts of a foreign nation, as well as by the dissemination among them of those principles subversive to the foundations of all religious, moral, and social obligations, that's this French infidelity that was coming into all the campuses in America, I hereby recommend a day of solemn humiliation, fasting, and prayer, that the citizens call to mind our numerous offenses against the Most High God, confess them before him with sincerest penitence, implore his pardoning mercy through the great mediator and redeemer for our past transgressions, and through the grace of his Holy Spirit, we may yield a suitable obedience to his righteous requisition. Righteousness exalteth the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So where they're going away from God, we're coming closer to God, having a day of fasting. What happens? We end up having a second great awakening revival, right? Our rubber band snaps back. We're going back to God. And so in Kentucky and Tennessee, you got these preachers, right, out there in the woods. And one pastor, James McCready, makes all the men in his church vow to pray one Saturday a month, sort of like for an hour. And then uh, they had a meeting and 500 people showed up. The next year, 1,500. The next year, 15,000. The next year, 20,000. next year, 25,000 people are showing up in the Kentucky woods. And this spreads. They don't have microphones. So they set up these wooden platforms. And about 50 yards, there's another platform, another 50 yards, another platform. And they're all preaching at the same time. So you go out of the earshot of one preacher. You come into the earshot of the other preacher. Some are singing and praising the Lord. Others are on their face repenting. And this is spreading across the country. 
and uh, it crosses racial lines, the Second Great Awakening. And it gives birth to a world missionary movement, right? The Haystack Prayer Meeting. A bunch of students up in Connecticut, the storm comes, they hide under a haystack, and they were going to, the, the survival was happening. They vowed for world missions. And what do they do? They end up starting this missionary organization that sends thousands of missionaries all around the world. And then the abolitionist movement starts out of this Second Great Awakening revival. And meanwhile, France, remember all the head chopping off stuff? They end up getting a dictator named Napoleon, conquers all of France almost. Uh, and then he's going to, he conquers Spain, puts his brother on the throne of Spain. That's when Mexico breaks away from Spain. They're like, why should we be loyal to the Spanish throne with the French guy on top, who's, by the way, excommunicated by the Pope? And so, um, anyway, so now Napoleon, are you still following me? <laughs> should I repeat anything? No, please. No. Um, so Napoleon takes the Spanish and French Navy, and he's going to invade England. But the Battle of Trafalgar, he's defeated. And so now he uh, is landlocked, and he decides he's going to invade Russia. So here's Napoleon invading Russia with a half a million men. He comes out six months later with 50,000. <laughs> How do you lose that many men in six months? Well, he did it. The Russians burnt all their fields in front of his army, and then there's blizzards, and then the Russians attack. He actually crosses the Berezina River in retreat before his army. And then when the Russians attack, he's on the wrong side. He can't even give him orders. And so he's watching all his men get killed. Anyway, he comes back and he's banished to the island of Elba. And so now Britain is more or less the most powerful military in the world, right? They defeated Napoleon's navy. Napoleon's defeated on land. Britain has this big army and navy. And they're like, what should we do with it? They go, oh, America. We forgot all about America over there. So it's the War of 1812. So Britain sends a squadron of ships to Lake Erie, and they're going to take Detroit and then take all the Northwest Territory back. And James Madison, our president, the fourth president, he has a day of prayer, September 9th. Rendered thanks, acknowledging the transgressions which might justly provoke his displeasure, seeking his merciful forgiveness, unerring precept of our holy religion to do to others as they should, Richard others should do to them. Well, look at the date. September 9th, he sets the date. So the whole country prays. What happens September 10th? Well, September 10th is when this British squadron comes on Lake Erie. We have 28-year-old Oliver Hazard Perry. Never really fought in a battle before. All of his, most of his Navy is um, the black, free black soldiers from Ohio, right? They're his Navy crew. We don't even have a port on Lake Erie. They have to build the ship and drag it across a sandbar. It's called Putten Bay, Ohio. <laughs> they put the boat in the bay. And so what does he do? He confronts this British squadron. But the British have long-range cannons. And they're splintering his flagship to pieces. And his cannonballs can't even reach the British. And so they expect him to surrender. But this gutsy young guy, 28-year-old Oliver Hazard Perry, get rows to his second ship called the Niagara. And so while he's rowing to the Niagara, uh, the wind sort of changes the way the ships are all arranged. And the, he sails his Niagara directly across the British line. And he's firing every cannon away like a madman. Boom, 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 just firing them away. After 15 minutes, boom, 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 he gets to the other side and he had disabled the entire British squadron, right? The smoke clears and blows, and these British ships are just sort of, you know, they're just sort of lopsided. And so he tells his men on deck, the prayers of my wife are answered. <laughs> <laughs> 
He writes to the Secretary of Navy, it has pleased the Almighty to give the arms of the United States a signal victory over their enemies on this lake. The British squadron, consisting of two ships, two brigs, one sooner, one sloop, have this moment surrendered to the force of my command after a sharp conflict. And then the President, James Madison, writes, it has pleased the Almighty to bless our arms. On Lake Erie, the squadron under the command of Captain Perry, having met the British squadron of superior force, a sanguinary, I mean, bloody conflict ended in the capture of the whole. I mean, this was amazing. This guy had never really fought before. Sailors hadn't really fought before. Taking on the most powerful navy in the world, right? And in 15 minutes, disables and captures them. So this gets us all back to Detroit and all the whole Northwest Territory. But the British aren't done. They land near Washington, D.C. And our soldiers just run away. And so the British army just walks right into our U.S. capital. And uh, James Madison was out directing troops. His wife is in the White House. She sees everybody fleeing the city. She decides to take the painting of George Washington off the mantle of the fireplace, roll it up, and she rides out of town on a carriage while the British Admiral George Cockburn is riding into town. He rides up to the White House, goes inside, sees the table set because they were about to eat. He sits down, eats the food, and then he sets the place on fire. This is our White House. And then he goes to the um, uh, Capitol building, and he has his soldiers sit in the chairs of our congressmen, and he goes to the podium, and he says, who votes to burn the American Capitol? And they all say, I, and they torch our Capitol. And then they set fire to the Treasury, the Library of Congress, they attacked the Navy Yard. Our U.S. Capitol is going up in flames. And uh, suddenly the storm clouds come in and the wind picks up to a frightening roar and lightning begins striking down at the British soldiers and the ch chimneys and roofs are being knocked over on the British. Even cannons are being lifted off the ground and thrown yards away. And uh, horse and rider slapped to the ground. The book Washington Weather recorded British Admiral George Cockburn exclaiming to a lady, great God, madame, is this the kind of storm to which you are accustomed to in this infernal country? <laughs> to which the lady replied, no, sir, this is a special interposition of providence to drive our enemies from our city. <laughs> the British are driven out, torrential rains come and extinguish the fires. And the British marched back to their ships only to find two of them blown ashore with damaged riggings. And so a British historian writes, more British soldiers were killed by this stroke of nature than from all the firearms the American troops had mustered in the feeble defense of their city. Right? This was a miracle in American history. Uh, James Madison writes, the enemy, by a sudden incursion, has succeeded in invading the capital of the nation. During their possession, though for a single day only, they wantonly destroyed public edifices. Independence is now to be maintained with the strength and resources which heaven has blessed. And so what happens next? He declares a day of fasting. The two houses of the national legislature express that in the present time of public calamity and war, a day may be recommended to be observed by the people of the United States as a day of public humiliation and fasting and prayer to Almighty God. His blessings on their arm, a speedy restoration of peace, of confessing their sins. Hmm. This is interesting. You know, I've read through all of the past presidents, their proclamations, uh, days of thanksgiving, days of prayer, days of fasting, prayer, and you keep seeing this repenting of sins. It's like, why is that? 
um, that he would pardon their offenses. I've deemed it proper to recommend the day of humble adoration to the great sovereign of the universe. Have you ever played with magnets and you stick them together and then you turn one of them and what happens? They repel. So let's say there's two magnets. One is God and the other is you. The God magnet has two sides to it. One side says, I want to bless you. And the other side says judgment, right? Blessings, cursings. He is a just God, right? So the you magnet has two sides. One side says repent and believe. And the other side says doubt and sin. So if you have your repent and believe side facing God's I want to bless you side, the magnets stick together. If you flip and have your doubt and sin side, God still wants to bless you, but you're turned the wrong way. And those magnets just aren't going to touch. God cannot bless doubt. Remember, Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth, and he could do very few miracles there because of their unbelief. And then God cannot bless sin. That's the story of Balaam, children of Israel coming into the promised land. King Balak goes to a hill, gets the prophet Balaam to stand up there and tells him, curse those people. And every time he opens his mouth, it comes out a blessing. This King Balak is pulling his hair out. But then you read a couple chapters later that Balaam told King Balak if he sends the young Moabite girls into the Israeli camp and lure the men into sin, once they sin against their God, then you can defeat him in battle. And, you know, God was so upset for Balaam telling him this that even the book of Revelation talks about, you know, the the sin of Balaam. and, And so... If we insist on having doubt and sin, God's magnet flips around to judgment. Sin attracts God's judgment. Why? He's a just God. He's got to judge the sin. If he doesn't judge the sin, he's giving consent to the sin. Silence equals consent, right? And so, um, so anyway, so our founding fathers realized that before we can ask God to bless us, we have to repent of our sins. And so, uh, so then, after the British are chased out of Washington, D.C., they go to Baltimore, it's the third biggest city in America, and the British shoot 1,800 cannonballs nonstop for 25 hours. And um, Francis Scott Key, an attorney, he was out on the British ship doing a prisoner exchange, and the captain made him stay on the British ship, so he's watching this. Well, that storm system that was over Washington, D.C., it moved over Baltimore. And Fort McHenry is an earthen fort. If you've been there, it's a bunch of dirt piled up, right? And so the dirt made the, the, the rains made the dirt sort of muddy. And so these cannonballs were like sinking in the mud without exploding. And um, anyway, so on the morning of September 14th, the sun comes up, he sees the flag waving, and he writes the Star Spangled Banner. Now, we're all familiar with the first verse, but I think we should start singing the fourth verse at the ball games. Oh, thus be it ever when free men shall stand between their loved home and the war's desolation. Blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land praise the power that has made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must when our cause it is just, and this be our motto, in God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave over the home of the free and the land of the brave. That phrase, in God we trust, did become our motto. Lincoln put it on our coins. 1931 made the motto. It was Eisenhower, 1957, put it on our paper currency. So um, anyway, a couple more stories. Uh, The British, so we win the War of 1812. 
but nobody had a telephone to call New Orleans. <laughs> so there's a British troops attacking New Orleans. Now, what did the British do? The British incited the Indians with promises of money and gold and give them guns to butcher American settlements. This was the tactic the British used to take over India, right? All these kingdoms in India, the British would go to one kingdom and give them guns, go to another kingdom and give them guns, and then stir up ancient animosity so they would fight each other. And the British would come in and in the confusion, take over both. And then they would go to another kingdom, give them guns. And they just kept repeating this until they took over all of India. This was the Machiavellian strategy where you go into a community, find people who have grievances, and you stir them up to riot and cause disunity. And in the confusion, the government can come in and take over everybody's rights. And so they tried this in America where they were coming in to the Indians and these British were giving them guns. And so you go to Fort Mims, Alabama. British take Pensacola. The British are supplying the Red Stick Creek Indians with guns. You know the French pronunciation of Red Stick? Baton Rouge. Right, Baton Rouge. Anyway, so the British attacked Fort Mims, Alabama, I mean the Indians, and they scalped 500 people for no other reason other than they want to get the scalps to take back to the British. Here's the um, historical marker um, where it says, um, anyway, it, it talks about how Fort Mims, Alabama, and they had all the, uh, the, the 500 killed, and my, uh, my clicker uh, paused, but maybe that's the signal. Am I supposed to quit now? Okay. Um, Oh, there, there's a, it says Fort Bims, Alabama, Creek Indian War. And the bottom line says Creeks have been armed by British in the Pensacola, the War of 1812. Anyway, so uh, Jackson goes to New Orleans. 10,000 British soldiers are coming to the American position. There's a fog. And uh, even the French pirate Jean Lafitte is helping the Americans. And um, the British are sneaking up, sneaking up, sneaking up. Suddenly the fog lifts. And these Americans see these British soldiers right in front of them, and the Americans fire and kill 2,000 British soldiers in 30 minutes. Only eight Americans are killed. Again, this is the most powerful military in the world. 2,000 of them killed, only eight Americans. And um, it's the Battle of New Orleans. And um, anyway, Andrew Jackson writes to... Uh, Afterwards, it appears the unerring hand of providence shielded my men from the shower of balls, bombs, and rockets when every ball bomb from our guns carried with it a mission of death. And um, he writes, I was sure of success, for I knew that God would not give me previsions of disaster, but signs of victory. He said, this ditch can never be passed. It cannot be done. This is the pastor of the church in New Orleans said that Jackson came in and prayed before the battle, and the Lord gave him a prevision of victory. Jackson writes to the Secretary of War, heaven to be sure has interposed most wonderfully in our behalf. I'm filled with gratitude when I look back at what we have escaped. Anyway, that's a miracle. One more, uh, Lincoln, Civil War, picks a day for a day of fasting. Picked April 30th, 1863. What does he say? We have forgotten God. We've forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in, in peace, multiplied, enriched, and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before uh, the offended power to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. What date is the nation praying? April 30th, 1863. What happened two days later? The South shoots one of its own best generals. Stonewall Jackson, he's outnumbered two and three to one, and he's winning, and he's defeating, and there's the Battle of Chancellorville, and he's winning, and after the first day of the battle, he's coming back at twilight 
because he was observing the battlefield for the next day. He comes back at twilight. His own men yell, stop, who goes there? And before he can answer, they let off a volley of shots. Shoot him twice in the hand, once in the arm, kills his horse, kills about 15 men around him. And then he ends up dying about a month later. And just about every Civil War historian will say, if Stonewall Jackson had been at Gettysburg two months later, the South probably would have won. And the war would have had a totally different outcome. It's hard to acknowledge because he personally was a good man. But nevertheless, this was God's plan that he didn't want the country divided. He didn't want slavery to continue. But it was two days after a national day of fasting and prayer. Anyway, uh, I probably out time. I do the same thing during the Civil, the World War One. Uh, Woodrow Wilson had a day of fasting and prayer. And um, do you know Woodrow Wilson during World War One passed out New Testaments to all the soldiers? He writes the foreword to it. The Bible is the word of life. I beg that you read it. That number one general, Pershing, he writes a foreword to it. And uh, so the story is um, we have some Americans. They're in France. They're being shot at. And uh, the sergeant, Alvin York, says, the Germans got us, stopped us dead in our tracks. Their machine guns were up on the heights overlooking us well hidden. We couldn't tell for certain where the terrible heavy fire was coming from. Those machine guns were spitting fire, cutting down undergrowth all around me. All but eight of Sergeant York's group were killed. Well, he starts shooting the Germans, and uh, he ends up killing a bunch of them, so they're keeping their heads down. And then he started making turkey calls. Gobble, gobble, gobble. And the guy would stick his head up, boom, and shoot another one. And then he said he could shoot better standing up than lying down. So he's standing up there, boom, boom, just shooting them all. And then six guys charge him from behind, and um, all he's got is his revolver. He turns and he shoots them. He said, I shoot them the way you shoot turkey. You shoot the furthest away one first. Because if you shoot the closest one, the other ones will scatter. You'll never get them. So he's shooting them. And then he turns around and shoots them. Finally, a little white flag comes up. And the German commander marches down with 132 of his men. And, he's, and Sergeant York comes out. And, and they're like, uh, how many of you are there? <laughs> and it was just him and maybe another guy that crawls out of the woods. And... Um, <laughs> So he's, he's marching down the road with these 132 of them he captured. And they're not about to run away because they know he can get them. And he gets the Medal of Honor. He says, some of them officers have been saying that I, being a mountain boy, accustomed to the woods, done all these things just by instinct. I had never got much learning from books except the Bible. Maybe my instincts are more natural, but that ain't enough to account for the way I come out alive with all those German soldiers raining death on me. I'm telling you, the hand of God must have been in that fight. Just think of them, 30 machine guns, rain and fire me, point-blank range from only 25 yards. And then their rifles and pistols besides those bombs. And then those men charged with fixed bayonets, and I never receiving a scratch, and bringing 132 prisoners? I've got only one explanation, that God must have heard my prayers. (laughs) He comes back to America, and he starts a Bible school right? The Sergeant York Bible School. And then they even have Gary Clark do a movie about him. Uh, So these are just some of the stories of Gary Cooper. What did I say? Gary Gary, Gary Cooper. So um, these are just some of the stories that here we are, America, out of the 6,000 years of recorded human history, we get this form of government where we get to be in charge of our own lives. The word citizen means co-king. We get to be in charge of the country, right? And uh, we have these freedoms, The freedom is that God loves you. He wants you to love him back. The more you love someone, the more you want that someone to love you back. God loves you infinitely. He has an infinite desire for you to love him back. 
But he can't force you to love him back because love, by definition, must be voluntary. The moment he would force you to love him, it would no longer be love. It would evaporate. Sort of like if a husband twists his wife's arm and says, tell me you love me. (laughs) No matter what she says, she doesn't love him. But if he woos her and courts her and defends her and protects her and rescues her and takes her to dinner and gives her flour and chocolates and out of the abundance of her heart it bubbles up, I love you, then it means something. That's what God's after. He's not after, you know, submit to me or I chop your head off. If he wanted to make us obey him, he could make us like all the rest of creation that just follows instinct. No, he's interested in this thing called love. God is love. He loves, he wants to be loved back. Doesn't need our love any more than parents don't need their kids to love them, but they want their kids to love them. God doesn't need our love, but he wants it and he wants it really bad. But love must be voluntary. I say all that to say that God in America, it's not like Europe where you had to believe the way the king did or he's going to burn you at the stake. It's not like the Muslim sultan that says, you believe or I chop your head off, right? It's in America, our founders set it up so you would have the voluntary opportunity to choose to love God. That's what our founders gave us. And with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Pastor. God bless you. Wait, wait, wait. Back up, back up, back up, back up. Did you cover Jefferson and Adams? Um, wait, wait, wait. You got to hear this story. So we're getting ready to go into July 4th, and this is 2019. One of the most significant stories in American history is the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. There were two presidents who had their signature on many of the founding documents that were instrumental in this nation's birth. They died on the same day, and you've got to hear the story because it is, for me, one of the, my most favorite. And when you hear the prayer of one of the president's sons who ended up becoming president, John Quincy Adams, the son of John Adams, when you hear his words in relation to that 50th anniversary, which is a year of Jubilee, uh, it, is, it is so fascinating. So when you step into July 4th this year, I want you to have this story resonating in your mind. I just teed it up, so hit the ball out of the park. So 1776, 1826, 50 years later, big event in America, Bunker Hill. Marquis de Lafayette, the 19-year-old that came over and helped us fight the revolution from France, he's now back after 50 years. And it's like this big celebration. And on July 4th, 1826, Thomas Jefferson dies and John Adams dies. 50 years to the day that they signed the Declaration. And John Quincy Adams, the son of uh, John Adams, is president. And he says, at a distance of 700 miles from each other, the hand that penned the ever-memorable declaration, Jefferson, and the voice that sustained it in debate, Adams, were by one summons called before the Lord of all to give account for their deeds done upon this earth. He says, an event so extraordinary gives confirmation that the labors of these men and the liberties of America are objects of divine protection. God, out of world history, gave us this country so that we have the opportunity to love him and share his love with a hurting humanity. God bless you.